0: Is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio? I'm Katherine Cruz. Shot clinics for young children rolled out this week at most private schools, charter schools, and some regular public schools. We check in with Winston Sakurai, the principal of Kauhao School, which used to be known as Lanikai Elementary. You may recall. Sakurai cut his teeth as a student member of the school board and was later appointed to the board. He shared that growing up in Winward Oahu, he always wanted to become a school principal and he's happy to be in the community that nurtured him. He is holding the first weekend shot clinic for his students ages 5 to 11.
1: What we expect is about 30% of our school population to uh, come to the clinic this Saturday. We have some early adopters who have already uh, gotten a shot in the arms of their keiki by making appointments with either their physicians or going through other locations. But nationwide, about 30% is the response rate for the initial round of vaccines for those anticipated
0: in the 5 to 11 group. So, yes, yeah, so you're following that uh, that trend then? That's what we're
1: expecting. And, you know, we're very happy to partner with Adventist Hell Castle, a local hospital here, a medical center coming to our campus to do a mobile clinic. And, and we're so, you know, just surprised by the support we've received uh, from them and, and the National Guard coming out to help us out and the community uh, really just getting excited about having the opportunity to finally have vaccines available for the younger students.
0: To be clear, so this shot clinic then is being held on a Saturday and and is that so that parents can be there with their children when they get the shots?
1: Yeah, you know, um, you know, shots can be scary for younger children and, uh, you know, even for older older children and adults as well and so what we want to have is the opportunity for them to uh, come on campus on a Saturday uh, be with their children as they're getting the shot rest up for that 15 minutes to see if there's any side effects and and just have a very smooth process and give them that one day to recover on Sunday just in case there's any of those mild side effects that happen and then return back to school the following Monday
0: and just to be real clear though the Saturday clinic and that's just for your students yeah, so
1: most of the schools that we know of are opening it up just to their community. That's to uh, make sure that there's enough of the vaccines available for the students. But we have also opened it up to our parents who want to get a booster, or if they haven't gotten vaccinated yet, they can, or uh, older siblings at other schools within the family unit. We want to make this as much as possible to protect our, our school families. And I know a lot of schools are doing the same thing, providing it uh, just to their community. And uh, as uh, the... The state level or island level vaccine clinics rollouts, such as the one at Aloha Stadium, that one will be open to any student from any school. And having a a a car drive-through setup is a lot different than just having something in a a library or in a cafeteria. We're trying to keep that at least the community bubble intact as much as possible. So,
0: while the I guess the broader community can then access those large clinics. Uh, that are being held. Schools are doing it differently, you know, private schools, charter schools, and public schools.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, again, it's exciting. They're meeting the needs of the community and, and uh, you know, tailoring it to what they're expecting for responses and, and whatnot. It really is a, a great time for, even as, as we're going through this pandemic and not seeing each other, uh, this is even a great time to at least see family members uh, slowly come on campus and, and, and do these shots in, in small groups and then uh, returning back to their homes uh, on the weekend.
0: How are you folks keeping track of who's vaccinated and who's not? I mean, is it pretty much a voluntary thing?
1: Yeah, so right now the Department of Health hasn't sent any guidance to schools for collecting of vaccines for COVID-19. They do require schools to uh, have that form 14 and have vaccinations and immunizations on a card that uh, parents submit. But right now they haven't sent anything for us to collect them mandatory collection. So everything is voluntary right now. And then as we're going through the revisions to the school opening guidance, revisions to, you know, immunization records, there may be additional requirements that either the Department of Health has or guidance in terms of how to collect voluntary information from, from families. If they do so, submit right now, just as they do submit for uh, travel. If they're traveling out of the state, they, they do have to submit uh, some kind of proof of, of post-testing. All those medical records are kept safe by the schools, and so we're we're trying to make sure that we protect everyone's privacy uh, and, and at least follow some guidance uh, that will come out soon uh, from the Department of Health.
0: And what are you doing to try and reach out to maybe some of those families that are uh, maybe on the fence or, or want to wait and see before they have their child get the shot? You
1: know, education is the you know, the job that we're in, and we try to provide as much education and, and information to uh, families uh, to receive, uh, you know, the vaccine. Uh, it is optional and it's voluntary. We're not trying to put undue pressure on anyone, but we are encouraging and promoting vaccines because the thought is as, as many opportunities as we can to reduce the number of days that students are at our school is really the end goal. We want students to be in school, on campuses, and, and vaccines is, is one pathway uh, to reach that. Uh, we just wish the pandemic was over. And, and this might accelerate, you know, having classes, uh, not having to quarantine uh, for long periods of time. This will reduce the amount of time students miss school. And that's really the hope. And and we're not quite there yet. It's just the very early beginning parts of this. But this is one uh, one way, hopefully, that will shorten the amount of time students miss from the classroom.
0: And what can you share with us about the uh, number of positive cases at your school?
1: We have uh, been very fortunate uh, that we, we had a uh, like like everyone else at the beginning of school year, a large number of community uh, outbreaks that uh, trickled into the school. We've only had one within the past you know two months, so we're very happy about that. And it was an isolated case. So uh, right now we're we're in single digits guess, in terms of uh, positive cases on campus for staff and students, and so we're really happy with that. The community is doing a great job, and I can't thank our our, our families enough, and even uh, the community members in Kailua. Uh, for taking it very seriously trying to protect their students from any any spread of, of of covid so it's it's kudos to them and we want everyone to keep up the good work including our staff and we're very excited to have students back in classes on a full-time basis
0: what's the uh, vaccination rate for your staff
1: you know right now we're over 90 um, percent and we have a few that have uh, made a decision not to get vaccinated and we're trying to make sure that we keep everyone safe and and support everyone we do testing on campus for our staff members as well. Yesterday we had opened up uh, drive-through testing for students, voluntary again. But it seems like uh, what's happening uh, with what everyone is that they're very informed. They're trying to keep everyone safe, and and uh, vaccines and testing uh, goes a long way to uh, keeping COVID in check.
0: You have a second clinic also set up for the second shots.
1: Yes, so we have one this Saturday, mm-hmm. and then December fourth is our second clinic for the second dose, and then hopefully two weeks afterwards we'll see many many students fully vaccinated entering into the winter break. We're very appreciative of the opportunity to talk about the the shot clinics. Many, many schools are working overtime uh, to protect uh, their students, staff and families. And uh, we're just uh, a small piece of that. And we're very thankful and and proud of all the efforts uh, educators are making across the state uh, to support students in their learning and keeping them in school.
0: That was Winston Sakurai, school principal of Kaohau School, formerly known as Alanikai Elementary. The charter school is holding a Saturday COVID vaccine clinic for its students, so parents can be with their children while they receive the shot. The school is partnering with Adventist Health Castle Medical Center, whose staff will administer the vaccines. Reality Check today winds up with a long-awaited audit report of the Western Pacific Fisheries Management Council. It caps a deep dive into the organization by Deputy Editor at Honolulu Civil Beat, Nathan Eagle. He joins us today. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. So talk about timing. (laughs) Uh, Share with our listeners, I mean, you just uh, filed, oh gosh, what is it, a seven-parter on the council? On Westpac?
2: Yeah absolutely yeah it was, the timing was just ridiculous uh, so i just finished that seven part series on the western pacific regional fishery management council and a few of those stories point out that there's this you know investigation that started in 2019 by the feds into the sustainable fisheries fund and um, that followed an investigation we did in 2019 uh, and then, sure enough, yesterday um, the Inspector General's office released that report. It's about 45 pages uh, of auditing uh, that fund, which is about 7.4 million dollar fund, and you know they found questionable um, costs and expenses in 1.2 million dollars of that seven. So, kind of a lot to go through.
0: Well, now, then that has been kind of the concern that a number of people have had, you know, about uh, the, I guess, the accountability, you know, where some of these funds going to?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a concern throughout the reporting process that we heard pretty consistently is that uh, there's just not very good accountability. Um, there's not very good system of record keeping and things like that. And, and Westpac, the executive director and chair, didn't refute some of the findings. A lot of a lot of the findings they did say, no, we either didn't know we were supposed to do that or uh, here's some additional files that should hopefully um, alleviate their concerns. Uh, but in the end, the auditor still did stick with uh, a million, a little over a million dollars worth of um, those expenses were, were questioned.
0: So that's what, I think the way you broke it down, one in six dollars spent, um, people are kind of scratching their heads about whether they, it was appropriate spending or not.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: So, gosh, you know, you did this uh, deep dive, uh, you know, and I know you looked at other regions, other councils. You know, how did this one stack up?
2: It, it stood out in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's so there's eight regional councils um, that govern, you know, fisheries in uh, U.S. waters, uh, which is like three to two hundred miles out generally. Um, So I went to Alaska to get a look at what the North Pacific Council does. Everyone said, if you want to see a council that has generally done a a pretty good job of managing the fisheries up there, uh, go check that out. So that's what I did and uh, talked to a whole slew of fishermen and and officials and conservationists and and just a wide range of, of folks up there. And the, one of the biggest takeaways was just that they seem to have this conservation ethic that was, um, as their executive director of the council uh, put it, uh, was kind of set in motion at statehood uh, in 1959 for them. And so what their approach has, has just tended to be a little bit more longer-term uh, vision than, than short-term gains. So that was one takeaway.
0: And, you know, as a reporter and, and now an editor, I mean, we know that a lot of times there are things that don't get into the story, but was there anything else that you were struck by uh, as you were doing this reporting?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, despite seven parts and probably way too many words, uh, the one thing that definitely struck me from that trip especially was the the labor difference. Um, you know, you meet tons of folks who are either living in Alaska or working on the boats or have flown in from the U.S., um, some international, but, but mostly from the U.S., uh, to work these jobs where, you know, you get on a crab boat and they would tell me, you know, yeah, this summer, you know, I'll make $60,000, $70,000, 80000 uh, Whereas here, you know, like our Hawaii longline fleet, which catches, you know, the tuna and swordfish, uh, that's own, the owners and captains are U.S., but the crews are entirely foreign labor and paid, you know, very, very little.
0: And then what happens going forward with the councils?
2: So uh, going forward, um, two things. On the audit, they've got like a month or so to respond uh, to this final report, and then NOAA will will take that into consideration before it decides what to do. And then longer term, what we're looking at is what kind of reforms will happen through this pending update of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which uh, Representative Ed Case and, and Jared Huffman of California have introduced in, uh, in August, and a lot a lot to go through in that bill.
0: Right, and that was the act that kind of created these councils. Right? It, it
2: is, yeah, in 76 it uh, created these councils, and uh, it's only been updated significantly twice along the way, so this will be its first um, pretty big reform in the last 15 years or wow. so, and and some of those look directly at that Sustainable Fisheries Fund.
0: Okay, well we'll see what change comes, but thank you so much, it was interesting reading.
2: Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: All right. That was Deputy Editor Nathan Eagle with today's reality check. Uh, To read all his stories, visit civilbeat.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience In Human Terms, a refreshed installation featuring a new soundsuit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. In
4: 1981, HPR debuted with the Lush and Wild Strains of Mahler, broadcast from the old Varsity Building on the campus of
0: UH Manoa. The lore goes that the signal only reached a few blocks' radius. We've grown quite a bit since then. We've moved to a larger space, which we own outright, and we have two stations that reach across the state and beyond through broadcast and digital channels. 40 years of Hawaii Public Radio made possible by you. Thanks for believing.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com.
0: Hawaii's Wilfredo Tungal knows a thing or two about duty to country. The retired lieutenant colonel served 28 years in the Army Reserves, and he's been passionate about a story about equity. We talked to him about a special Veterans Day program that airs tonight on television entitled Faces of Courage, Untold Stories of World War II Filipino Veterans. The show debuts on this Veterans Day thanks in part to Move Me Hawaii, a Beta Beta Gamma Foundation effort that highlights social justice issues. Here's Tungal talking about why the program is so important.
5: It's basically a story of the Filipino veterans, both from the Philippines and also from Hawaii and the continental U.S., who fought in the Philippines between 1941 and 1946, early 1946. It basically uh, tells of how the Filipino veterans made tremendous sacrifice in helping the U.S. government fight the Japanese during the war in the Philippines. Yet after the war, the promise that were made to the Filipino veterans that they will receive the same benefits as the regular uh, U.S. Army soldiers were rescinded at the end of the war, and they weren't able to receive the benefits that usually the regular U.S. soldiers would get. For example, the GI Bill, you're familiar with that, uh, and uh, Veterans Home Loan, and, uh, you know, survivor's benefits. So those are, you know, benefits that they could have received if they were treated the same way as they were promised when they volunteered to help in the war effort. I mean, it's basically uh, injustice, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, because, you know, you promise these people, these soldiers that, look, uh, you know, we will treat you the same as our own soldiers, and yet after the war, they pulled the rug under them uh, through this rescission act that is still in the books. Yeah, and and so they never received benefits. I'm referring to the Filipino veterans who fought in the Philippines and not the Filipino uh, citizens, U.S. citizens or nationals who are already living in California, the West Coast and Hawaii, who volunteered. So we also honored them, yeah. So that's the first uh, Filipino infantry regiment, and then there was a second infantry Filipino regiment because uh, uh, many Filipinos in the U.S. also volunteered to help fight in the war.
0: Yeah, and we do hear so much about the 442nd and and the highly decorated, you know, units of of the Japanese Americans that fought, but the Filipinos did play a big part I- in the war.
5: Very much so, Catherine. You know, I think it would be fair to say that had the Filipinos not joined in the war effort, that U.S. probably would not be able to win the war, at least in the Philippines, and who knows, maybe even the, the Pacific.
0: Yes, and, uh, you know, the Japanese took over. Uh, they were there in the Philippines. They were there in Guam. And, you know, I know... Uh, My family was in uh, Japanese concentration camps at the time. You know, we heard so much about the death march of of Bataan in the Philippines and and how rough that was.
5: So the Bataan death marches, it's when they captured uh, Bataan and the island of Corregidor, they marched over 78,000 men, almost all men, over 70 miles in a period of uh, a little over a week without adequate provisions, food, medicine, water. And if you, you, know, if, if, if you fall down and, uh, and, and you can't get up, uh, they just leave you alone. Or worse yet, the, 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 the Japanese soldiers actually bayoneted you to death. So that's very, very famous, at least in terms of the, you know, the military uh, circles. Over uh, 10,000 soldiers died during that march. Yeah, Filipino, mostly Filipinos, and there's uh, just a little over a, a thousand uh, American soldiers.
0: And so this film aims to tell these stories that m- maybe the the wider audience doesn't realize happened in, in, in history, and to right the wrongs, the injustices, about getting benefits for those uh, Filipino nationals.
5: Uh, yeah, primarily we wanted to educate the general public, especially the younger generation, of the contributions of, of these Filipino soldiers. When I was growing up and uh, going to public school here in middle school or high school, never heard anything about the Filipino soldiers or their contribution to the war. I mean, I've heard of the 442nd, and I'm familiar with their story, but there was never anything in the books about the contribution of the Philippines or the Filipino soldiers in particular during the World, World War II. We're hoping that at least with, with this film that we'd be able to educate the public, they would know about the contributions, and at the same time, hopefully, that uh, we can get them to help us down the line, maybe revoking this Rescission Act.
0: And talk about the efforts, too, uh, by lawmakers to right this wrong. Uh, through the
5: years, there's been some effort to rectify the injustice. Two individual in particular deserves credit, and that's the two Dannys, the two senators, Daniel uh, Inouye and uh, Daniel Akaka. They had tried to reinstate the benefits that should have been given to these veterans. You know, this is as early as in the 1990s, or even earlier, I believe. But they were unsuccessful. And I think it's because of money, how much it's going to cost. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are still alive at that time. Uh, So, you know, they were unsuccessful. But eventually they were able to at least provide some partial remedy through compensation. They awarded fifteen thousand lump sum, one time payment, to Filipino veterans who are living in the US and nine thousand dollars to veterans who are living in the Philippines. Okay, as long as they can prove that they fund the war. Secondly, there were a partial granting of immigration to the U.S. for Filipino veterans who wants to come over. In the late 80s, the bill was passed and was signed into law, I believe in 1990, that would allow Filipino veterans to immigrate to the U.S. So thousands immigrated. I I, I don't know the exact number, but we're talking about maybe 25,000, a lot of them moved to Hawaii because uh, they heard about Hawaii and how it's almost like the Philippines in terms of the climate and the, the large Filipino population. So I think the estimate was like we had almost between 2,500 to 3,000 Filipinos who came to Hawaii, but they have to come by themselves. They cannot bring their family. So some of them have spouses. They can't bring their spouse right away. They have to go through the process of being becoming citizens and then petitioning for, you know, for their spouses. And if they have minor children, they can. But any other uh, relatives, they're treated differently. I'm sure you're familiar with the quota system for each country. So some of their adult children who they petition are still waiting.
0: And there was also, though, uh, the uh, idea that th- there were stories of value. There were soldiers that should be eligible for the Congressional Medal. Right.
5: In I believe it was around twenty sixteen the public law that was passed awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest award that the country can bestow, yeah, by, by Congress, and then signed into act by President Obama, which basically awarded congressional gold medals to any service member, not just Filipinos, but primarily Filipinos. That's why it's called the Filipino Veterans Congressional Gold Medal Act, who fought between I believe it's like 1941 all the way to the end of 19, almost the end of 1946. So if you fought in some kind of capacity, you're entitled to receive this Congressional Gold Medal. So the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project established this medal through the act of Congress. And this is a self-supporting endeavor so it's not funded by Congress. The Phil rep, for short, basically raised the the funds to buy the medal, to award it. We have a you know a, a ceremony, and then we give it to the living veterans if they're if they're still alive. or if they've passed, we still honor them through their necks of kin, so the next of kin receives it.
0: So how many have they awarded so far?
5: In Hawaii, we awarded over 200 medals and we're still awarding them. We had two public ceremonies. The first one we awarded over 150, and then the second one I think we awarded over 75. Is there a
0: third round coming?
5: We'd like to, but with a COVID situation, we couldn't do it. We still had some applicants, and so we have about 20 in this past couple of years. So, what we did, and I have to get give credit to our uh, director, Anita Akuhito. She did a virtual ceremony, basically. Uh, okay. Yeah.
0: So So with this film, though, that's coming out, you're hoping to raise awareness and then uh, raise funds for this cause.
5: Uh, yeah, you know, of course, it's you know, totally voluntary. And, you know, we are a um, tax-deductible nonprofit. And because we do incur expenses in terms of uh, not just the metal, because now the metal costs over $150 dollars, each, but also we have a, an education project. You know, we're trying to push out this curriculum that hopefully school will adopt nationwide. So if they want more information, uh, they can go to duty to country just one word, no space duty to country.org.
0: We have been hearing from Will Tungal with the Filipino Veterans Recognition Education Project, Phil Vet Rep for short. Proceeds from the event will go to support its education efforts in the community. The film airs on K5 at 7 tonight, and then on September 13th on KGMB, and then on the 20th on KNL.
3: Aloha. This is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. I'm excited to be on Hawaii Public Radio for a weekly look at climate, ecological health, and environmental justice. We confront the challenges of climate disruption, but also showcase the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home, including species like Hawaii's very own nene. Tonight at 6.30 here on HBR1.
0: Another film about war veterans will make its PBS Hawaii debut this Saturday. It's a documentary titled Hunting in Wartime. It focuses on a group of native Clinkett Vietnam vets from an island in Alaska named Huna. According to them, more men went to the Vietnam War from that island per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the film's director, Samantha Farinella, to discuss why so many of them were chosen and the bond that they formed with our islands.
3: When
5: I grew up, I wanted to be a hunter and a fisherman, and I could do both of them. I don't think any
6: of us said that we were going to be soldiers when we grew up.
4: Colonel come over,
1: how come you're so tough on the Indians? He said, I know these Indians, they're from my hometown.
3: They're tough and they could take it.
7: Survival, right? They have to survive really harsh winters. They have to know how to hunt and fish. And of course that made them really good soldiers because they knew how to track deers. And they knew how to attract people. And it was just this kind of survival thing. And I think it, it became much bigger than what I thought. I thought I was going to just make like a piece about these guys, but it, it got much deeper, which I'm glad it did, you know? And, and I, I think this movie does touch on things that other movies don't. I don't think we're ever asking the right questions in media about the Vietnam War. But what I did want to do with my film is just focus on these vets who like went through major discrimination. No dogs, no Indians allowed in this bar. Like it was... It, Complete discrimination, but still having that pride in the country to go fight. There's so it's so many complications and contradictions too, that I wanted to show in humans. Like, I think it's just very easy for people to think, oh, well, you're patriotic, you do this, or you don't do this, or, and I think there's a lot more nuance in, in people. And, you know, these men don't feel, a lot of them don't feel a ton of pride in what they did, but they still wear their hats and they still wear their, you know, medals and stuff. I don't know, I I, try, I tried to make this film in their words, You know, there's no narration. And I think it's told very honestly because it's in their
8: words. I think it reminds us that we're not completely one thing or the other. You know, we're always a a mixture of things, sometimes battling against each other, sometimes being at peace with each other. But I think it talks a lot about the, the human experience and it's not always easy. One of the men you interviewed, I believe his name was Ken Austin. Yeah,
7: Ken, yeah. Lives in Hilo.
8: Can you tell us more about him and do you know how he found his way to the Big Island?
7: So many men from HUNA, men and women, they love Hawaii. I think there's a very big connection between Native Alaskan and Native Hawaiian. So I believe Kenny was stationed here. I didn't go into the depths of, because he didn't want me to, so I couldn't. Basically, the military recruited Ken to be an interpreter. So he got full Vietnamese language training. And unfortunately, he was part of the Phoenix Project. So he got to witness a lot of torture, a lot of murder. And he didn't really want to talk about that but I believe his training was here and he loved Hawaii. So, I mean, he spent like, I think like 20 or 30 years here. Like I know he got his degree in social work and Hilo was his home. And I think he found peace here. I think there's something about why that made him feel more at peace. And unfortunately he passed, I think in 2017 or 18, he passed. They loved Hawaii. So there, there was a definite connection and that's what I've kind of wanted to tap into here. I called a, a veterans organization and they were going to set up a, a, a screening in December for the vets. But then for some reason, the uh, Oahu Vet Center said my film was too political and won't allow the film to be shown in the, in the Oahu Veterans Center. So I'm going to, I'm trying to find another place. So if anybody can sponsor, you know, a room for me, I would be happy to show veterans here for free. So I didn't make this movie to make money. I made this movie to to help people and people in social work and psychology up in Alaska use this film as kind of an icebreaker for men to talk about it. You know, when when I had my screening, there, daughters and sons came up to me and said, I know my father went through this. I had no idea. My uncle did this. Those guys held that stuff in for probably 40 years. You know, I think it's an important film. I think that, you know, people who see combat, they don't talk about it. You know, I feel like you always got to watch the ones who brag because it's probably not, they didn't really experience it. I found in this film, you know, interviewing 20 people,
5: guys as you don't know, talk about it. We used to admire these great big long jets with long
4: wings, and it had a cloud going behind all of them. We
5: didn't know it was Agent
4: Orange.
0: The dreams were bad, dreams were bad.
5: We weren't made to kill, we weren't made to kill humans.
8: I had two uncles who served in Vietnam and I asked them about their experience when I was young and they said they don't talk about it. They both passed within the last four years. So I never got the chance to hear their account. And I I don't know from even from their kids that they talked about it. In your film, a handful of these veterans talk about their experience in war, in fact, they emphasize the importance of talking about it as part of the process of coping with the aftermath of war. Can you talk about how you were able to get these men to open up about their experience? And did you get the impression that we wouldn't have lost so many Vietnam veterans to depression, alcoholism, addiction, suicide, if more had been done to give them a process
7: for talking about
8: what they went through?
7: A hundred percent. I feel like, I mean, the first thing we have to kind of discuss when we talk about this is patriarchy, right? Where men are taught not to show emotion, not to cry, not to do anything. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think me being a small woman and extremely open, like when I interview people, I'm very open about what I am, what I do. You know, I know I'm good at some things and I know I'm good at interviewing and I feel like I was able to get their trust. And I came back every summer for like five or six years, right? So I was part of the community after a while. You know, I still get Facebook messages and stuff. So I think that helps. But honestly, the first time I came, that's when I got 90% of my stories. It was like that first trip in 2010. And that was, you know, I felt very honored about that. But it, it was something that I think I was an outsider, but that they trusted. And I don't think that they really wanted to tell their closest people, like what they've done or what, yeah. what went what went on. I think it's really hard to talk about, you know, murder and death and violence and, and stuff that really altered your life at such a young age, you know, you're what, in your 20, early 20s or late mm-hmm. teens. So I'm hoping that society is changing a bit, you know, with all the Me Too movement and all this different stuff that, you know, I see it when I teach, you know, in universities over the past, I've talked for like um, like five years maybe, and and I see a difference in guys. I feel like they're more open and I, and I really hope that's the case.
8: One of the things that, that really impacted me hard with the film was your use of archival footage and clips from the war. There's many images I have never seen before. The dead bodies, the decapitated bodies. And I think those are very powerful in conveying just the, the brutal truth of that war. How were you able to obtain those images? And what was your philosophy behind using them within your film?
7: That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I wanted to show war like war is, and I don't think that we see it that much, to be honest with you, even, even in graphic movies. I want the pictures I showed in the words of the men to kind of have a confluence because it is, it is a, it's a decision I made and it's, it's a harsh one. And it took me a really long time. I basically spent three days in Washington, DC at the national archives. So that is the bulk of the images were at the national archives. I also did go to Wikimedia Commons. I found a picture of waterboarding that kind of shocked me because it was, you know, I learned about waterboarding more with the Iraq war and and Guantanamo Bay and stuff like that. And I didn't, I didn't think we were using that in Vietnam, honestly. I did a ton of research because I really wanted to find photos that were not only graphic, but just showed the brutality of what we did there, but also what our soldiers had to do. It must be really tough. To be there and to be told, you know, round up these people or do this or do that. And I tell it along the story that Victor's talking about, you know, how soldiers would rape people, but we weren't that way, you know, and I wanted them to know that it's just like in, in the city or anywhere else, you're going to have people that abuse power and you're going to have people that protect people, right? That's just like what we do. And soldiers are a microcosm of society. So you're going to have people that are maybe abuse power and people that support and help people.
8: When I was watching that, I felt like it was important for me to see the honest brutality of war. Because I th- I think a lot of times war gets kind of glorified in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I have a lot of family in the military and I'm very proud of them, but I can't even relate to what it would be like. I couldn't even understand, comprehend what it would be like to have to take another life or be in a position where it's either you or them. Yeah. And I think the impact that these images gave me just kind of made me feel more compassion for the things that our soldiers went through. And so I appreciate your choice to be as honest as you were in that film. Soldiers are asked to do difficult things during war. Unless we've been there, we, we can never know, you know, what the psychological and emotional trauma they go through. Yeah. What I love about your film is that you end on a hopeful note. And without giving too much away, can you talk about your ending? Was it important for you to have some light at the end of the tunnel?
7: at the end, you know, the, these men, I was interviewing them. They were resilient. They were sober. They were, they went through a lot. So their life isn't easy, but they really did make something of it. They had families and they, and they helped people and they were fishermen and they were part of the community and they really climbed back out of that crazy pit. And I really wanted to show that you're testing yourself to the limit, right. As a soldier in any way. So you can turn that around, right? Even if you're at the de- the depths of whatever, like we know what the Afghanistan Iraq war like. The, I think the suicide rate is the highest from those. And so this doesn't end. It's not like it ended with the Vietnam War and everything's hunky dory now. It's not. I think there's a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in war to get you through it. And I think that that follows you out. And it's just how do you get out of that? And you know, and I, I would just say like seek help, talk to people that you love you will come around, you will hit bottom, and then you'll bounce, you know? And I think that that's a very important thing because we're, we're losing too many good people because there, there's not a lot of outlet, especially with mental, you can, you, can, you can get legs now that you can use that you didn't have before. And you can do a lot of things that are amazing with technology of medicine, but that doesn't always translate with mental health. And I think that that's the one thing that we really need to to kind of get more around for our soldiers. Is 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 the mental part because it's it's a tough thing that we ask them.
0: That was the Honolulu based filmmaker Samantha Farinello talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about her documentary, Hunting in Wartime. The film will be airing on PBS Hawaii on Saturday at ten PM. For information, check out the link on the conversation page of our website later today.
3: I'm like a soldier getting over the war I'm like a young man getting over his crazy days Like a bandit getting over his lawless ways Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queens Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. Aloha, this is Dave Lawrence, host of HPR's All Things Considered. We regularly check in with world-renowned musicians like Carlos Santana, Linda Ronstadt, and many others in a series called Off the Road. We get into some classic storytelling and exclusive musical performances, too. Catch Off the Road Friday afternoons during ATC or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For info, head to our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
0: The Peace Corps celebrates 60 years of sending American volunteers abroad for public service this year. Did you know Hawaii played an instrumental role at the Corps' outset? It served as a training ground for more than 7,000 volunteers from 1962 through 1971. The Conversation Zillian Song sat down with one of those early recruits, retired Big Island teacher Patricia Richardson, who remembers an impromptu speech by President John F. Kennedy, which started her on the path to becoming a global citizen.
6: I was at the University of Michigan studying Latin and Greek, and President John Kennedy came to campus to campaign, but he also first introduced the whole idea of a Peace Corps. How many of you who are going to be doctors are willing to spend your
5: days in Ghana, technicians or engineers, and spend your lives traveling around the world. Not merely to serve one year or two years in the service, but on your willingness to contribute part of your life to this country, I think will depend the answer whether a free society can. I think
1: it can.
6: And this idea just began to grow in my mind so that in 1963, when I finished my studies in Ann Arbor, the Peace Corps was recruiting right on our campus, and I thought, I think that would be a good plan for me. And so I signed up, you know, went through the whole selection process. My family had always supported me and been a bit adventurous themselves. Later on, my mother also joined the Peace Corps many years later. So they were very supportive, and my mother put me on the plane to Hawaii for training. I know that was a little bit hard for her, but I had complete support and understanding of what I was going to do from my family.
4: And I was connected to you because you actually do have memories of being trained in Hilo
6: Yes. When I first arrived, it was in October of 1963, Uh, a Peace Corps training center had been set up at the old, old hospital by Rainbow Falls. If you're in Hilo, you drive up Wayanui Nui Avenue, which is headed eventually up into the saddle road, and you come to Rainbow Falls, which is still a great attraction. And just below Rainbow Falls, there are some buildings, and one of them was Originally a hospital, but that had been converted into um, a ground floor cafeteria to feed us, and then upstairs classrooms and quarters for our teachers, a nice collection of people with different skills. So they lived and taught there, and then a little bit across the way, closer to the falls, was an old wooden two-story nurse's quarters. And we were housed in very simple but very comfortable accommodation. And we we slept there and then walked across to the old, old hospital for our classes and our meals. And then all of our physical activities sort of started there and went off in in different directions. And another activity very important. We were taken down into YPO Valley where they'd set up villages that looked like houses that we would be living with. And we lived in YPO Valley at a very simple lifestyle to be prepared for what the conditions might be. And the trainees were brought in from all over the country and spent three months, in our case, learning Malay and also learning uh, the history of Malaysia and some history of the United States, too, because we were going to be representing our own country. And it was three months of intensive training, including physical training, which I really enjoyed. We climbed up to the summit of Mauna Kea, and we went out paddling in Hilo Bay, and we ran down from the training center to the school for calisthenics at Hilo High School. And also, since we were a teaching group, we did practice teaching, and mine was in Waiakea, waina elementary school, which was a wonderful experience for me, too. And then on November 22nd, our training was tragically interrupted by the assassination of President Kennedy. On that day, all of the teachers who were in classrooms teaching were brought back up to the training center, and we and the whole town just went into mourning. And then the groups who were training We got together and put up a little memorial to Kennedy, founder of the Peace Corps, and we put it in front of the old, old hospital. But later on, when that building had no real connection to the Peace Corps anymore, the monument was moved over to the University of Hawaii at Hilo Campus, right in front of their library, and that's where it is today, where it is seen by young people. It's commemorating the founding of the Peace Corps and mentioning the importance of the training center right in Hilo.
4: So, Patricia, you had 12 weeks of extensive immersion training, which prepared you to go abroad to Malaysia, where you committed to two years of teaching in northeast Borneo.
6: Yes, and, you know, I'm just so happy. I was part of the history of this movement back in the early days, Looking back then, I was a fourth grade teacher in an English medium school. My students were native speakers of either Malay or Bajau or Chinese, but they also knew enough English to do all their studies in English. They were amazing children, and after two years, I liked the area where I was so much that I re-upped for two more years. And then after that four years of experience is when I made a career decision for my life that I really did want to teach up until that point. I didn't know if I wanted to be a a doctor, a lawyer, a, a linguistic student. You know, I really was kind of open to what I could do in the future. But Peace Corps helped me settle right in on teaching as a career. It took me about a year to get from Borneo back to Michigan and figure out what to do next. And I happened to be right back in Ann Arbor on the University of Michigan campus, and the State of Hawaii Department of Education was recruiting on the Ann Arbor campus for teachers, and it was just kind of perfect timing for me because I went right up to the table and signed up and then got hired to come out to teach in Hawaii, And at that point, I still had no official teaching certificate, but the state of Hawaii accepted my four years of experience teaching to hire me, and then I did get my proper certification eventually. Just lucky for me that the state of Hawaii accepted my experience to let me get started. I find that a whole lot of life, especially for me, since I don't think ahead and plan ahead, I would kind of wait and keep my options open. Timing is everything. And to be you know, at the right place at the right time, which you can't control, it just kind of happens, has been the way I've lived my life and it has always worked.
4: It's fascinating to learn that Hilo, of all places, was a geographic center for the legacy of President Kennedy. This idea of being a global citizen, still resonates. Hawaii continues to send out Peace Corps volunteers every year.
6: Well, there have been many young people going out from Hilo, and I was a high school teacher, and many of my students, several of my students, um, through various connections, decided they would go into the Peace Corps as well. And one went to China, and one went to Kazakhstan, and one went to South Africa, and all of them came back with wonderful experiences. So the training center kind of started things, but it closed down. But the the outreach for joining Peace Corps did not close down.
4: Hmm. Very exciting to hear, though, that as a teacher on the Big Island, how you were able to see next generations, your students go on to be Peace Corps volunteers. Do you think it was also something that they picked up from you?
6: Some of them, I, I... I'd like to think they did, because I talked about being in the Peace Corps. I mean, we all do, and we like to share that with the people around us. Some found it absolutely on their own, but then when they found out I had been in the Peace Corps, we would, we would get together and talk about it. But um, perhaps some of the contacts I made in, among my high school students had something to do with them deciding to take on that adventure.
4: When you think about it, what is it about Peace Corps that you see continuing that drew you to Peace Corps?
6: Well, the the main value is there are three kind of main values. One was to go out and help countries that needed help that asked for it. We never went to any place we weren't asked for. And the other was to bring back the knowledge of those cultures to America because America can sometimes get a little bit unaware of other cultures. And then the third is to pass on the whole Peace idea to younger people. I think I've done a better job with being a volunteer and then bringing some of it home than I have with um, encouraging. I haven't actively encouraged people. And so if they've gotten a message from me, it's been kind of by chance. Although in my teaching, I always have felt that part of teaching is not just, I mean, I was teaching English and French and Latin, and it's not just teaching facts and figures. It's sharing with young people how to make decisions about their life and how to find a good path to follow. And I know my one piece of advice was always do what you love. That's going to bring success and happiness. Don't just go for the money or or whatever, but follow what you really love to do. And I think a lot of people have found that that is the way to have a good career and to enjoy your career and to enjoy your life.
0: That was retired teacher and Peace Corps volunteer Patricia Richardson. You know, there are a number of upcoming events to commemorate the Peace Corps' 60th anniversary. From November 15th to November 21st, look for a couple of documentary screenings and a service project at Hamakua Harvest in Honoka'a. We'll share details and have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Later today. Sit for today. Up tomorrow, Noi will join you for Aloha Friday. Got a story you want to share with us about being a veteran? Leave a voicemail on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email it to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And did you miss a show this week or want to listen to a past show again? You can listen to full shows or individual interviews because of all of our content is archived on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.